0: Sometimes on retreats, especially long retreat when things are getting difficult, I'll, I'll say to myself, Brian, Brian, remember, remember to lead with the heart. And what that means for me is to, uh, to take some time to appreciate uh, what I'm engaged in. Because when I step back, I I do feel, at least for me, that that what we're doing here or the practice that we're doing here is such a beautiful gift for the world, that we're offering this beautiful gift. And leading with the heart reminds me of that, that, to appreciate what I'm doing here. And it allows my heart to soften in a way, which is been so important for this practice for me. So that's what I'd like to begin with, just an invitation for us to lead with the heart to appreciate what we're doing here, this beautiful gift that we're giving to the world. And often when I sense into that a little more deeply this leading with the heart, it, it begins to offer a different, you could say, feeling sense for me of of what this whole process of liberation is about. Possibly what this flavor of liberation is about. Because it's such a tricky realm to talk about liberation. For example, if you look in the Pali discourses, one of the most common definitions that the Buddha gives for liberation is a heart free of greed, hatred, and delusion. That's the liberation that arises from this path and this practice. It's a simple description, a concise description, and yet it doesn't say anything to us of what is there. It shares with us what is not there in the heart that there's no reactivity. So sometimes it can leave us with, well, what is this liberation? And I'd like to begin with maybe another possible description of what this whole liberation thing is about. And remember, when I'm sharing this with you, this other possible description, I'm just sharing with you yet another story about what liberation can be about. It really is just a story. And it is true. Whenever I open my mouth, I'm just sharing with you stories. And even when it sounds like I'm not sharing with you a story, it's just a story. (laughs) Important to remember. (laughs) I mean, it's important for me to remember this when I'm speaking to myself, so I always think this is important for other people to remember that I'm always sharing stories. And I'd like to, in light of this, I'd like to share with you a, a, a poem by the the great poet, Shesua Miwosh, uh, who was, some people feel, one of the, the, the great poets of the 20th century. Born in Lithuania, but, but uh, saw himself as a Polish poet. And I, I remember seeing him uh, at a poetry reading in Claremont, California. And it was a moving experience because at this poetry reading, a lot of the local Polish community had come to see him, to hear him offer his poems. And being in that room with the predominantly Polish community, it was like you could feel their hearts filled with so much love and excitement to get to hear this national hero. Because Szczesł Miłosz was considered a, 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 a kind of Polish national hero. Sometimes I think to myself, wouldn't it be cool to live in a country where m- most of our national heroes were poets? <laughs> Might be a little bit different of a country. <laughs> It'd be so cool. <laughs> but I guess that's just mere hope. <laughs> so his poem, To Fall in Love. so he begins. He says, <clears throat> to fall in love... Does it occur suddenly or gradually? If gradually, when is the moment already? He goes on, I would fall in love with a monkey made of rags, with a plywood squirrel, with a botanical atlas. I would fall in love with an oriole or with a ferret. With the forest one sees to the right when riding in a cart to Jasany. With a poem by a little-known poet. With human beings whose names still move me. And always the object of love was enveloped in erotic fantasy or was submitted, as in Stendhal, to a crystallization. And of the fairy tales about it One invents. Yes, I was often in love with something or someone. Yet falling in love is not the same as being able to love. That is something different. Have you noticed how the heart falls in love with all kinds of things? It's attracted to all kinds of things. And then the fairy tales about those things that the mind invents. And how some of those things that we fall in love with then are enveloped in erotic fantasy. And then he makes that distinction. You know he says yes i was often in love with something or someone yet falling in love is not the same as being able to love that is something different maybe that's all this is about this retreat just opening the door to be able to love. Not merely falling in love, rather being able to love. And I find this a powerful poem because it's truly about being able to love yet there's not a single word in the poem about being able to love. All we're given is that it's different than falling in love. There are no words for being able to love. And I find it striking. It's kind of like the way the Buddha was. is He doesn't give words to describe, not many words. You can find passages where there's some descriptions of awakening and liberation, but it's more about what it's not. And there might be something about this, learning to describe and understand in our practice how these hearts get hooked by falling in love. And then learning how to unhook, to disentangle from those fairy tales. And then I I feel being able to love, it just naturally unfolds without a, a need for words to describe it. In the Zen tradition, it's it's interesting. The, the sometimes the the language that's used. You find this also, especially in, in Chan and in, in China, uh, is uh, the language of intimacy. That practice, spiritual practices, truly about intimacy, spiritual intimacy. For example, on this retreat here, we we have this opportunity to have this intimacy with the breath or with a sound or a pain in the body, getting close to that sadness or that frustration, an actual intimacy with the confusion that can be there or the fear. Not lost in it or overwhelmed by it or oblivious to it, intimate not entangled in intimacy with those experiences. There's a Zen scholar who, I, I, I appreciate his work by the name of Peter Hershock and he wrote quite a few years ago a book called Liberating Intimacy. And a forewarning, if you get the book, it's kind of an academic, nerdy book, kind of books that I like. So, <laughs> it might not be too appealing, but I, I, it was a great book. <laughs> and and I love just the approach that, that, that uh, maybe what practice is really about is liberating intimacy itself. So it's not about you getting liberated. It's not about me getting liberated. Rather, intimacy gets liberated from what we're doing here. And maybe there's something true about that. Maybe your life won't get any better from this retreat. (laughs) That you came to this retreat, and you're going to end up with the same difficult life. We thought we'd tell you this now rather than at the beginning. (laughs) But maybe, maybe through your service here, our service here, what comes out of there is that, liber- uh, that intimacy gets liberated. That we, we serve, we're, we're, we're doing our service here, and then there's this opportunity for more space, for true inti- intimacy to, to happen in this world. To me, that would be a worthy life in service of liberating intimacy. I want to be clear, you know, I think it's fine if you're here, if you're trying to make your life better or improve it. But when I have this notion, it, uh, it gives me a sense that maybe what we're doing here, that something bigger is going on. You know, for me, I have so many ideas about what's going on through this practice that gets stuck in this teeny little mind. And that's why I find it helpful to have some notion that just can't fit into this mind. Like I'm here to liberate intimacy. Because then it keeps me in contact really with, with the mystery of all of this, rather than needing it to confine it to some kind of limited sense of something that this little mind can understand. And I think the trick is, is that the intimacy can get so confined and entangled. It really ends up imprisoned because of these minds of ours. And I'm sure you've seen it, whether, you know, you see that impulse for closeness with another. Whether it be having a tinge of a sexual tinge to it, or just a simple wanting to be close. And have you noticed how it gets entangled with our grasping and our aversion in ways that just it brings suffering to our lives? And probably in your life out there in the unreal world you've seen how it brings suffering to other people's lives when when it's so entangled and confined with our reactivity. And so this is what I'd like to do tonight, is just to share with you some reflections about navigating this impulse that we have as human beings, this impulse to to come close to another, whether it be sexual or not, and to share this in order to liberate intimacy from its confinement, from its entanglement with our reactivity. And also in this talk, I, I, I think it's important to really share about also navigating what can come in this realm, namely sexual energy. Because it arises on retreat. Maybe some of you have noticed that. <laughs> and it can get intense. And also what can often come with it on retreat, not only in retreat, but in society, is that often it doesn't get acknowledged. It can be left out. I know my own experience around this, just around how complex and intense it can be and the challenge of it. I was uh, doing a long retreat in, in Burma, and in Myanmar, and it was at... Uh, Saida Upendita's forest monastery, uh, Semangon. And I was doing my practice meetings with uh, the Venerable Saida U- U- Upendita. And I don't know you know, if you've heard stories about uh, Saida Upendita. He's, there are times where he can be, I found, so warm and so gentle. But most of the time, that was not my experience of him. <laughs> it's kind of a sternness to him and... It, just to be honest, it was so intimidating to do practice meetings with them. You know, it was uh, something that maybe all of you have felt too. Just going to practice meetings and how crazy making it can make you feel, right? Yeah, th- those, those 15 minutes that are going to happen in two days, and it feels like you're spending every hour thinking about them. <laughs> And I think that was one of my, my desires is just to stop thinking about those 15 minutes because it feels like uh, there was so much planning going on. And going into the practice meeting with Sayadaw Upandita could have a kind of feeling of intensity because there was such an emphasis on the continuity of mindfulness. And it felt like, which I think he was, he was watching your every move as you went to do your practice meeting. <laughs> so it was this, this sense of really wanting to be as mindful as, as possible. And on top, of, on top of that, this was the complication, is that already already, I'm feeling the, the, imitation, the intimidation and the kind of crazy-making of practice meetings in and of itself. But in addition to that, I had this huge crush, this huge Vipassana romance on the interpreter who was in the room for every one of my <laughs> practice meetings. <laughs> so here I am, slowly walking in, with my heart racing because I have to report to Sayada Upendita, and my heart racing because the interpreter who I have this huge crush on is sitting right next to me. <laughs> you, know, you know, I think probably by meeting number four, I already had our entire lives planned out together. <laughs> it was a great, it was a great life. I still remember some of the highlights of that. <laughs> So it was not an easy situation. It was so tough. And it, it, it is amazing how crazy the mind gets with these things. Because I remember going to practice meeting after practice meeting, and then there was one day the interpreter was not there, and I distinctly felt that Saita Upandita had been reading my mind. <laughs> and asked the interpreter to leave. And at that point, everybody in the retreat knew what was going on in my mind. (laughs) I so hope your mind isn't as crazy as mine. (laughs) But in all honesty, what made it so crazy-making and so difficult is that I wasn't fully acknowledging it within my practice to myself. I was sorta of kinda of aware of it, but I was trying to push it away rather than to, to see, oh, this too is my practice. And that's where the complication was, is the, 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 the really the entangle, entanglement with it and the fighting with it. And really that's what it needed, and this is why I brought this up, just with the noting practice, just the simple and full acknowledgement of that experience so some of you you know might have had experiences around this for some yogis sexual energy can get really intense on retreats I know it can for me especially on long retreat and there can be such a huge mix and different flavors around this. It can just be the, 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 the flavor of kind of the raw sexual energy moving through the body, or at other times it's really mixed with that yearning for an intimate relationship or, or, or a connection. And sometimes what's strong is not so much the sexual energy, but the yearning just to connect is so strong. So I want to point out the whole range here. The whole a huge range around this, just in terms of sexual energy, sometimes it can be uh, intense or weak or none at all. And, and also around just wanting to connect, sometimes that can be super intense or not a hint of it in the whole range of that. And also I, I wanted to share this because I think it's important not to create yet another place where there's not an acknowledgement about being a sexual being. This is an aspect of being a human being, and this can happen. So common, such a common experience around this. Reminds me when I was growing up, uh, I was a teenager, and. There was one book in our, in our household that was about sex. It was a Catholic household, so it was a pretty liberal Catholic, Catholic household, since there was one book about sex in the <laughs> Irish Catholic family I grew up in. And it was the official Irish guide to sex. <laughs> <laughs> and I still remember on that night when my parents left so I could go check out the book. I remember getting the book, opening the book, and all the pages were blank. (laughs) Because that's the Irish guide, the sex. (laughs) Just as Rebecca was sharing, I was filled with a lot of disappointment. (laughs) But this is what happens often in religious and spiritual circles, is there's such a focus on the transcendent that there can be this negating of the earthly aspects of our being, such, such as our sexuality and these sexual impulses. And I find this very important for the context that many of us find ourselves thrown into. Right? The extremes that are displayed in society, either the extreme denial of sexuality or the deep obsession with it. And in dominant society, I'm sure you've seen these extremes. And as I mentioned in my last talk, your mind is society. The functioning of society, the functioning of the mind, our minds are society. It's a manifestation of how society functions. So what a gift to society to begin to examine these minds that have been so shaped by society in these unskillful ways. And how this impulse to connect and how this sexual energy manifests in our experience, I want to point out, is so complex and is so unique for every one of us. There's there's biological factors underlying it. It mixes with with uh, gender and sexual orientation. It mixes with our age and our stage in life. As I mentioned, sometimes a lot of sexual energy, sometimes none, sometimes a strong urge to connect, sometimes not at all. And shaped by family and society and a whole variety of experiences around it, both with ourselves and with others. and connected sometimes with you know experiences of closeness and connection and love and kindness. But also so complex because often it's filled with pain and confusion and, and an immense amount of hurt. And I wanna really acknowledge that of, of how so much hurt can have happened in this realm and can complicate and confuse so much of us around this. And I think again, just the way I began this talk, why especially in this realm, it's important to lead with the heart, a heart that is tender and kind and soft to ourselves, to be able to have uh, the compassion and kindness as we, we navigate this realm of wanting to connect, this realm of sexual energy. I want to acknowledge this, a a complex and intense arena in this realm of being a human being. And at the same time, here we find ourselves in this community together, say, in this life of retreats where we simplify in order to clarify, right? clarifying these entanglements of the mind or clarifying how the mind traps and confines intimacy through our reactivity. And we do this through living what's called the brahmacharya life. In some in some ways, this is situated around this third precept that we've taken. Brahmacharya, where where i sika padang samadiyami. So to abstain, you know, I undertake the training. This this training rule, um, the sika padang. I'm I'm I'm. I'm following this training to refrain from abramacharya, which is, you could say, negating celibacy. So it's, it's uh, to refrain from sexual activity. So we're here to refrain from sexual activity with others and ourselves. So no sexual activity on retreat. Namely, this life of celibacy. And this word brahmacharya, it's a, it's a word that goes back to the Vedas, so it, it predates the Buddha. And in the context of Buddhism, it not only refers to celibacy, but it's a term used to describe the entirety of the spiritual life. So in Pali, sometimes it's, it can be translated as the spiritual life or the holy life. And literally, it means the conduct that leads to Brahma. Or in the Buddhist uh, context, it's the, the conduct that leads to awakening or to freedom, just because of how the Buddha played with this word Brahma. And so here we find ourselves living in this world together of celibacy together. You know, some of you temporarily just on this retreat, and others maybe a longer commitment to such an exploration. And what I found about retreat is that this period of time where, where we commit to celibacy can be so helpful because what I've noticed is, is it allows me to, to start to create a different relationship to this impulse to connect, a different relationship to the sexual impulse. To actually be with it as it comes and goes rather than to be entranced and entangled with it to be lost in it, to be confused by it, to be at the whim of it. Someone once asked the 16th Karmapa why he had chosen a life of celibacy. Because uh, lamas, they reincarnate lamas in his uh, tradition, Uh, they would uh, uh, commonly uh, be in relationships or, or uh, uh, be in a marriage of some sort. So it was unique. And he replied, I am celibate for the same reason you are not. Or in other words, just as you're not celibate, I think what he was saying, you engage in Intimacy and sexual intimacies, in order to really connect with others, to be intimate with others. I am celibate in order to really connect with others, to really be intimate with others. I am order. I am celibate in order to connect and be intimate, truly intimate with others. I do feel that this practice of brahmacharya on retreat can help liberate intimacy in this, in this way. It can help teach me how to, to taste true intimacy with another, not an entangled or confined one. So maybe a little bit more of possibly what the karmapa was pointing to here. And maybe easier to explain it in terms of what he wasn't pointing to, because sometimes clarifying that can clarify what he was pointing to. And a story to help clarify maybe what he wasn't pointing to. And it's a story uh, that takes place at, uh, I think this, this happened at uh, Amaravati many years ago when Ajahn Sumedha was the, the abbot there. Amaravati being a monastery in in England in the Thai forest tradition. And at one point, one of the nuns there had gone home to visit family. And whenever she went home, her father would uh, require her to always wear a hat. Because it was so difficult for him to see his daughter with a shaved head. It was not something you know, her her uh, monastic life was not something that he supported at all. And that was just kind of emblematic of the tension that was there in their relationship whenever she went home. And so uh, this, this monastic, this nun asked uh, Ajahn Sumedha, what should she do about the situation when she goes home? And all he said was, Don't create him. Don't create him. In particular, he was probably saying, don't create him out of your grasping and aversion and delusion. Because that's what happens in these things is we create the other person. Right? This is especially what we do around connection and, and, and sexual intimacy. We create some kind of world. We create that other person. And a world around them, that's just a, a, a fantasy. It's just based on our craving. I mean, have, have you noticed this? You, 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 here you are on retreat and, and you might become attracted to someone that you've maybe not spoken to at all or just a few words. And then voila, you have a whole story about them. It feels like you know them. It's wild, isn't it? And it goes the other way. You, you hear somebody walking or you hear them chew food or you see them and all of a sudden you don't like them. <laughs> What's up with that? <laughs> so here we are, we're, we're creating each other moment after moment, often through our are grasping or aversion or a delusion. It's a creation of a completely unrealistic world. I think this is something to really start to see how how we do this to other people. I mean it's amazing the the worlds that we create around this. I I think this is interesting, just in terms of the fantasies that we might have about another person. You know, have you noticed when that appealing a fantasy arises in your mind about deeply connecting with with someone else, that you don't fight uh, uh, fantasize around some fight around money? You <laughs> fantasized about that. <laughs> Or you don't fantasize about the disjointed conversation that you have with that person that leaves you feeling abandoned and rejected. <laughs> What's up with that? Why well, isn't that part of the fantasy? Alright, or, or, or the stupid fight that you have around how to load the dishwasher. But that is part and parcel of relationships. That's what happens in relationships. All these these things happen all the time. This misjoining. But for some reason, we don't end up fantasizing about that. (laughs) Because our fantasies are, are really about an unrealistic world. And the same with sexual fantasies. I mean, have you ever fantasized about your partner having bad breath? Right? That often doesn't come into our sexual fantasies, right? <laughs> but sometimes it happens, doesn't it? <laughs> the, the craziness of the worlds that we create. And it's because the, the mind is so fixated on falling in love rather than being able to love. Love. So, I just want to point out, we're actually not interested in that other person. They've become the vehicle for our projections, a kind of caricature that's only there to fulfill our own needs, whether it's the needs of attraction or the needs of dislike. This is what gets born out of craving and aversion. It's interesting. The the Pali word for lust is raga. And it literally means to color. Like the the colouring of a, a piece of a fabric with dye. And I find this so accurate because lust, raga, it colors our perception of that other person. In in these really these unrealistic ways quite often. Anais Nin puts it so well. She says, we do not see things as they are. We see them as we are. And, and this is the, the cool thing about uh, retreat is to see this. The, the, the silence and the simplicity gives this opportunity to see these creations of the mind. And and th- this coloring that happens through raga. Also, we can begin to see how there's these bigger notions around falling in love and being in love that sometimes fuel this feeling of wanting to connect. And one image that I I think um, kind of exemplifies this quite well, and it it comes from uh, a platonic dialogue called the Symposium. And in this platonic dialogue, the setting is, is there's a a group of guys that are getting together to actually to drink so symposium literally um in greek during greek times literally the word means to drink together but a symposium was something that would happen after a meal to gather around and often to share things that they would uh, not share together so it was a little more kind of a, a little more of a uh open vulnerable time to share and the, the topic for the evening was love, and they were going around sharing their, their, their understandings, their descriptions of love. And uh, it came around to the, the playwright, uh, Aristophanes, who was known for writing comedies. remembering comedies are, are so often uh, reveal the absurd quality of being a human being. And Aristophanes tells this story. It's a wonderful Greek story. He says, you know, once upon a time, we were all cartwheels. And these cartwheels, they'd be rolling around, and these cartwheels were either um, composed of two men pasted together or two women pasted together, or sometimes a man and a woman pasted together, rolling around. I think if he was sharing the story now, he'd, he'd probably say, you know, he'd fit in trans folks in there, too, in terms of the whole mix of these different cartwheels and as always happens in in these in these stories they do something to really anger the gods so they piss the gods off this happens right <laughs> and then which always happens in these stories zeus punishes them <laughs> zeus gets pissed off back but he doesn't destroy him because you know gods love the devotion and the offerings so they can they they only like to kind of punish them in some way so that what what zeus did is he he uh he blows them apart from their cartwheels, so then they're left spending their entire lives seeking for their other half. And this is this predicament of, of finding one's other half in this, this story. And I find this actually really a, a, a quite a dark view. Because I know for me, have you ever had that impulse to to find that other person that's going to complete your life? You ever gotten in a relationship like that? Where it's like, oh, I know this person's really going to complete my life. All of those relationships in my life have been such a disaster. I just want to point that out. Maybe not for you. (laughs) There's something about that impulse of like, oh, I'm filled. And, And what I notice with meditation is there's this feeling of incompleteness. And then there's a seeking of what will take away that feeling. Maybe it's another person. And again, do you hear this, how this can be layered in, how Raga works, how there's this projection of, of wanting this person to fulfill those, those, um, those needs I'm trying to work through. And the harm that can happen to myself and to others when I get entangled in intimacy in this way. Because really those feelings, it's just a conglomeration of sensations and thoughts that arise and pass away. Nothing more than that. And I find that it's really through this practice of beginning to feel into those. To have the capacity to be with them rather than to be consumed by them. Then a door opens to liberate intimacy. Then a door opens, you could say, to the brahma Fiharas for these other beautiful qualities of the heart of kindness and compassion and appreciative joy mixed with that equanimity. So how to navigate these impulses, whether it's the strong impulse to connect or the sexual energy that might come up here and there. And the first thing I I, I wanna point out about it is how important it is to see this and how it interfaces with collective dynamics in our society, that what's going on in our mind is so intertwined with these collective dynamics. How these experiences, the dynamics that I'm gonna share with you, these moments shape society, shape an entire society. Just in the visual field, this is happening here on this retreat, just the same dynamic. The, the eyes get pulled or getting pulled toward the person you find attractive or the people you find attractive. And then what happens with that is it renders some people visible and other people invisible. This is so often how visibility and invisibility arise in society around individuals and around groups of people so i want to point out that our grasping onto the people we find pleasant and pushing away the people that we find unpleasant have has huge societal ramifications your mind is society So, attractive people, so societally attractive people by by kind of conventional societal standards, they tend to have better health, better physical health, they tend to have better mental health, they tend to have better dating experiences, they tend to earn more money, they tend to obtain higher career positions... They're chosen for jobs more often, promoted more often, receive better job evaluations, and are chosen as business partners more often than unattractive people. Right? Your, your mind is society. And just merely following it, it has huge ramifications How how our society is, is stratified and who, who gets what. And it's just how the eyes work. So interesting to see how attention gets pulled. And I'm, I'm just talking about right now the, the realm of attraction and dislike. And this is why it's, it's so rich to explore this play in the mind, in the heart. And this is why I think it's so helpful to restrain the eyes on retreat around the people that we have this strong attraction or this strong dislike to. Because it allows, allows us to explore this dynamic, to really become curious about it to feel that pull. Just by seeing this dynamic, scene, that it's, it's just the play of perception, the, the play of these sankharas, these habitual conditionings. It's beginning to notice that. Because then I get to see the play of perception and who gets seen and who is rendered, rendered invisible. And it happens in all kinds of ways. Remember, you know, sometimes this is around people you've never spoken to. So often then what's at play is, is how they're being perceived in terms of age or how they're being perceived in terms of gender. <laughs> Remembering that since you haven't spoken to anybody, you have no idea how people around you identify their gender. It's, it's so amazing how quickly the mind just assumes that or around skin color, or around height, or around ability. Of course, it can be around sounds, too. You know, the people walking or them, hearing them chew food or something like that. It's dependent upon these, these cues here. And then a whole world gets created of attraction or dislike. Of course, internally as well, the 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 images that the mind conjures up that can be so alluring. To start to have a different relationship to this. As James Baldwin said, he said, if you alter even by a millimeter the way people look at reality, then you can change it. You know, remembering uh, James Baldwin, you know, spending so much of his life writing in various ways about these systems of oppression and, and wanting to change those dynamics. Just altering it just by a millimeter, by simply seeing these dynamics. So a little bit uh, more precisely, how do I, uh, how do we uh, really examine this? And the Buddha also gives some advice around this. He he, he says so, and and what is the yoke of sensuality? Or you can say, what is what is the the confinement of intimacy? He says there is the case where a certain person does not discern as it is actually present the origination, the passing away, the allure, the drawbacks, and the escape from sensuality. They do not discern as it actually is present the origination, the passing away, the allure, the drawbacks, and the escape from sensuality. Then, with regard to sensual objects, they become obsessed with sensual passion, sensual attraction, infatuation, thirst, and fever, and sensual craving. This is the yoke of sensuality. So he's really giving us what needs to be discerned, what's not being discerned, as it is actually present. Can you, when there's this strong desire to connect or this sexual energy, just to acknowledge it? Oh yes, this is part of the human experience. Just the acknowledgement without the judgment, not getting lost in good or bad. And I want to point out, I'm not here to try to give sexual energy a bad rap or even that wanting to connect. It's just having a more skillful relationship to it that opens a door to a, a different sense of connecting. And then touching into the direct experience of that, the bodily experience of it. Noticing what that's like, stepping out of the thoughts, stepping out of the story world. And yes, it's going to be messy, but noticing that on the bodily level. And noticing in particular, as he's saying, the origination and the passing away of it, that it arises and passes away. And I think this is one of the things I've gotten from this practice is to notice that this wanting to connect, the sexual energy, it actually rises and passes away. It's something that comes and goes. Because so much of biology tells me that the way I get through this is especially around sexual energy through release rather than simply watching it arise and pass away. And also, can you notice... The allure and the drawbacks of it. And this can be challenging, but still so revealing. I remember a friend of mine was sharing with me she had, she said, you know, many years of her life where, uh, at this point in life, she said, you know, I just wasn't feeling any kind of sexual attraction or any sexual energy in her life. This is maybe even for about 10 years. And then she'd gone to a workshop and she met this. Um, this person. And when she met this person, she just said, wow, it was just like the, the desire to just be in a relationship with them and to connect that whole sense of like the fantasies of having a life together with this person and also how it stirred up for this person just a lot of sexual energy. And what she said to me is what she realized from it is how much suffering there is in that. She said, you know, she said, I am so glad that that is mostly over in my life because it was just really the feeling of dukkha. (laughs) And she said that was one of the things she realized, and especially in her younger life, it was just something that she didn't realize about that, is how, how, how it really disrupts her internal experience. And I'm not, again, saying this, that that having attraction is somehow bad. But sometimes noticing, especially on retreats, that stirring up does not have a peaceful feeling to it. It's, It's often the sensations I feel underneath some of those longings is unpleasant. And just to acknowledge that, to notice that. And I think for her, she really was appreciating the celibate life as a, a, as a, a, as a result. And again, not trying to convince you of that. But I, I like to bring that narrative in there because we don't hear that narrative very often. Like, w- when was the last time you were at a grocery store and you picked up a glossy magazine, you know, and it said, 10 ways to make your celibate life better? <laughs> Maybe I'm going to the wrong grocery stores, but I haven't seen that magazine. <laughs> we get plenty of messages on the other side, and again, that's that's fine. But just to to, to, to show that there's a, there, there are many different ways of being in the world. So this this practice that we're doing, the scene, the scene of this coming and going, the scene that frees. So what comes out of this, this whole exploration? I'd like to share a poem, uh, a simple poem that that I, I think expresses this in an interesting way, by the really one of the, the great. Some people think one of the, the greatest Chinese poets, uh, Li Po or uh, Li Bai. He says you ask. Why I make my home in the mountain forest? And I smile and I'm silent. Even my soul remains quiet. It lives in the other world which no one owns. The peach trees blossom, the water flows. Do you hear what this other world is that he's pointing to? It's one that no one owns, there's no one there. There's no small me confining intimacy. It's just the simple indirect intimacy with the peach trees blossom and water flows i do feel that this practice that we're doing here has this chance to liberate intimacy in all these different ways so may our practice here together lead to the liberation of intimacy. Thank you. Let's just sit for a moment here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.